0: Welcome to the Hammond High podcast. I'm Andre Longley. This week we bring you another session from our day of events, Hammond High, our community's mental health. In this session, writer and former number 10 communications chief Alistair Campbell and his partner, the journalist and education campaigner Fiona Miller, discuss life with mental health challenges documented in Alistair's book, Living Better, How I Learned to Survive Depression. So, um, for this next section, I want to welcome here Alistair Campbell and Fiona Miller, who I think are both on screen and should be audible. Morning, Alistair. Hey, how are you? Good, thanks. And hello, Fiona. Hello,
1: hello, hello.
0: How are you both doing today? Alistair, have you been on the heath in this blustery, stormy... Yeah, yeah we've, both, we've both been to the Lido
2: for half an hour, and we've both been out on this blustery day and there's a few trees down which is always a bit sad and Kenwood is closed because of the wind.
0: Ah well there's breaking news right here (laughs) in our live session from journalist Alistair Campbell, thank you for that. Um, Well thanks for joining us both of you and we're here um, partly because um, uh, there's a paperback version of a Book out, which Zoom isn't going to let me show you. It's a blank book, by the looks of it on the screen. But anyway, it's "Living Better: How I Learned to Survive Depression" by Alistair Campbell.
2: I, I, I don't blank. I don't blank oh. the background out. So here I am. Here it
0: is. There you go. Full branding in all its glory. Um, perhaps um, Alistair. Um, well, maybe I should introduce you both. Alistair, as people probably know, is a former journalist or a current journalist and writer and former communications director for Number 10. Fiona's uh, also a journalist and a um, education campaigner is um, the usual description. Um, Alistair, perhaps you'd like to start by introducing the book and uh, what the issues are that that led you to, to decide to write it?
2: Um I mean, I've written 17 books and I couldn't really explain why at any particular time you would decide to write that book at that time. But I think the practical answer is that I did a BBC documentary, Me and My Depression. And anybody who's ever made a TV programme knows that for every minute of television, you've got about 20 hours of stuff that just never makes the light of day. And I had all this research material, particularly from experts in depression, and I thought, well, I'll just t- try and turn that into a book. And then, of course, I know what publishers are like. They they liked all that, but they also want the very personal story. So I, the first half of the book is about me, my mental health, uh, my brother's schizophrenia, a cousin who took his own life, our son Callum's alcoholism, uh, basically our story of, of mental health. And then the second half, it's called A Search for a Cure, but it's more a kind of exploration of all the different research and the treatments that are going on. And then finally, the publisher, uh, when I'd submitted the manuscript, said, well, so much of this is about Fiona. It'd be really nice if she had her take on it as well. Um, So then there's a chapter from Fiona about what's like living with me. And then there's a final chapter about COVID. So, and partly it's just because I do think that, you know, I mean, every day I do stuff that is related to mental health and mental health campaigning. And I think books and films are a very important part of, of changing mindsets and changing attitudes and trying to change the way we think about mental health and mental illness, because ultimately that is what will lead to governments finally waking up to what needs to be done.
0: And it's a, it's a. I must say, I really, I really enjoyed it. It's a really open and um, fast read, and um, yeah, and 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 really honest about um, the depression, but also the other people in your life and and how it's affected them. Um, F- Fiona. Um, oh, and I should say to both of you, congratulations, because you both you had a civil partnership earlier this year, which since the book was written. So, congratulations to both of you, Fiona. What what was your thoughts? What were your thoughts when I suppose when Alistair said he was doing the documentary in the first place?
1: Well, I'm a bit, pre- you know, some trepidation really. It's quite hard to, you know, prepare yourself to reveal sort of quite a personal side of your life in that way. But I mean, once we've mm. done that it set me thinking about lots of things I suppose so when I was asked to write the bit for the book I you know my mind was already in train casting it back to what what it had been like at the time and what lessons if anything there'd been from how things had panned out for us over the last 40 years so it was actually quite therapeutic to write it
0: oh that's good and it kind of brought things in the open between the Mm. two of you I'd imagine as well
1: to a certain Um, extent yeah yeah, to a certain extent. Oh, well, I mean, it's partly because we started to discuss it more openly. I think that it was possible for Alastair to make the programme and do the book. But uh, it's more about sharing it with other people and seeing how many other people are in the same situation. From my point of view, that's been a big takeaway for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, what, what we're talking about in terms of Alistair's um, condition is um, severe depression um, that has gone, come and gone and been there for um you know most of most of his life um is it something that that obviously you've lived with for a long time so you must have had a uh, a changing attitude towards it or understanding of it over the years as yeah, he has.
1: I mean, right it started out with a sort of full-on psychotic nervous breakdown which then led to a period of depression but by then had convinced himself that it was alcohol induced so if he stopped drinking he'd be fine and once he got through that initial period of depression, honestly, I don't think we thought there was anything wrong, although it was clear that his behavior wasn't always normal <laughs> and that he had to go through periods of complete downs. And I think a lot of it was masked by overwork, was his way of dealing with it. So it wasn't really, so he stopped working at number 10 and it all started to surface again. That And there was this incident on the heath when he started punching himself in the face that's when we started went to see a psychiatrist, and that was thirty five years after we'd met. You know, so it took a long time to get to that point. No, so twenty five um, years. Twenty five years after we met. Twenty five years. Yeah,
0: Alistair obviously you talk about that journey in the in the book. How are you now?
2: I'm, I'm you know, I'm okay. I'm good. I'm uh, most of the time I'm fine. Um, I'd say in lockdown during the COVID period, I've had one bad spell, one moderately bad spell, and one that I was really surprised because it came and went very very quickly which is quite unusual and I do think actually the the book and the film and Fiona said she had trepidation I think both Fiona and my mum when she was alive I think didn't fully understand why I wanted to do all this stuff on mental health and why I wanted to talk about it I do find that talking about it and now campaigning on it and writing about it I find it I find it really helps me I think it's one of the reasons I'm in better shape is that I'm just, I don't feel I have to hide anything. I feel, I just feel I can be very, very open about how I feel. I think I'm much more conscious of the damage that my moods can do to myself and to other people. And I think that has meant that I've been able to change my behavior a bit, not, you know, I'm not pretending I'm perfect by any manner of means, but I think I'm better at dealing with it and understanding the impact that I'm having on other people. Whereas I think in the past, before we did go and see David Sturgeon, I'm, I'm determined to get as many Hampstead and Highgate references as possible. <laughs> David Sturgeon, the excellent um, Gospel Oak-based psychiatrist, um, after the incident on Hampstead Heath with the self-harm, um, that's when I think we really started to... And it was very, very painful, by the way. It was not a straightforward, easy process at all. And I describe a lot of that in the book about you know the exercises that we did. It was hard work. Um, but i would never done it before. Fiona's right. I convinced myself that if I stopped drinking, everything would be fine. Um, and to some extent, I was better, but I just, you know, the depressions kept coming and I just kept... I kept just, you know, drowning them in work
0: and obsessiveness and overactivity. And, uh, well, David Sturgeon is, is kind of the, the supporting... When there's a film of this, he'll be the best supporting actor nominee, won't he? I don't know who would play him, but it's, it's very much that role that's pivotal. Um, but it's it's an interesting exploration, because obviously you talk about um, that side, getting the support from um, from David. Um, you also talk about medication, which does play a role, but you also talk about um, the uh, how much of a role, how important that is, or where it fits into the more general um, approach to it. Do you want to talk a bit about that?
2: Yeah, I was always very reluctant to take medication for a long time, and whenever I Whenever I went on to medication, I was just gagging as soon as I went on it to try to get off it. Um, and I think David has persuaded me that it's fine to be on medication. And, and I'd say that for a while, I mean, I do sometimes worry that I'm addicted now to sertraline. I do panic if, I'm, if I, like I went away to Burnley the other night and I realised that I'd, you know, I, couldn't, I couldn't remember whether I'd packed the sertraline mm. just for one night. Now, as it happened, I'd hidden it inside an inhaler. <laughs> so when I had a bit of an asthma attack, I found it and I felt really relieved. But yeah, it's sort of um no, I I I'd say that medication, you put it the correct the question is the right one, because I, I don't see it as the re- reason why I feel okay most of the time. I see it as one of the things that that helps me. Um, and I'd say that there's so much other stuff that is more important, but it but it's kind of part of what keeps me. Reasonably good most of the time,
0: and uh, I mean that other stuff is um, you go into in, in some detail in in what the things are that's valuable in, in your life, and obviously family and Fiona and the, and the children are a, are a big thing in that. Um, d- does the assessment itself, the working out what your priorities are, does that in itself act as a as a therapy?
2: Oh yeah, totally. Because that 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 stemmed from when I was making the documentary, meeting a woman in Canada talking about something completely different who then introduced me to this concept of of the jam jar which is like a sort of it's just a self-help mechanism um to 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 sit down in fact if you just if you sit there it's, it's deeply phallic
0: is that um, the actual jar
2: no well this is <laughs> that's the actual jar the real jar okay this is my drawing of my jar uh, okay started with the jar and then there's all these layers that I've added on.
0: And you might need you know, to explain. And they, change. they what? You might need to explain a bit more what that picture was for, for our um, viewers. Yeah, it's a bit, I, I do accept it's, it's a bit rude, but it
2: started just like that. Mm-hmm. Sediment is your genes, then your life. And that's most of the time, most people can cope with what's going on in here. When you can't cope, your life explodes, and that's when you get ill. That's this is the what this woman, Janine Austin, was explaining to me. So I then, yes, you're absolutely right. Doing this helps you work out what really matters. So my first thing is FFF, Fiona, family, friends, meaningful activity, dotted line means meaningful activity to make a living, meaningful activity to try and keep changing the world and campaign and fight and whatever. Fundamentals, sleep, diet, exercise. Never used to take those seriously. Now I'm fanatical about all three. Burnley Football Club, very important. Backpipe music, very important. Creativity, curiosity, and that mean, that's things like never go to bed without knowing something you didn't know when you woke up. Read, listen to music rather than, you know, just bombard yourself with the news all the time. Uh, creativity, writing every day, uh, including writing bagpipe music and, and stuff like that. Landscape, scenery, my tree of the day, the dog, the bike. All these things are things that I can, I can retreat to both as a preventive thing, but also if I do get into depression, I'll just have this in mind, you know, mm. don't be horrible to Fiona in the way that I used to be when I was depressed. Do try to do something that campaigns or whatever. Do sleep if you're tired. Do eat well. Do go to Burnley Games if you can, you know. And so mm. it's, just a, it's just a sort of very useful little device that I use now, and, it, and in it are all the things that I go to when I'm feeling a bit low.
0: And Fiona, do you have you do you have your own jar at all? I'm I'm conscious that um you know that there's in in a relationship there's two people who um are involved and have their own things going on as well as being involved in the other person's life, um and you're not just but you're not just the foil for this, um I suppose what what's your approach to your life and do do you face issues like this? I've got I've
1: got the swimming pool. That's my, ah. and that always has been. I mean, I, th- I think it's very important to find something that you can do for yourself. I, mean, I was once asked by um, Jill Craigie, Michael Foote's wife, why I hadn't kept a diary. And I said it was because I was very busy multitasking, doing everything else, while Alistair spent six hours in the evening writing down everything that happened during the day. I know, I, I never ever I didn't ever, really ever. have time. No, I must, can rebut, I... must rebut, must rebut, must <laughs> rebut. No,
0: I'll no, oh, just, just sit hours. back for
1: Mute yourself, mute yourself. Six I, hours, I feel deadlines. that, you know, I mean, I have started to think more about myself in the past few years, but I didn't at the time. I just, if I was really upset about it or I found it very difficult, I just used to go swimming. And when I got out of the pool, I felt better. And that's always been. And then latterly, I've taken up yoga as well. And th- those have always been the ways that I've dealt with those things. Yeah,
0: And, and, it, and it still helps and, and still works to, to do when, when Alistair's struggling.
1: Well, I've now converted him to swimming, you know, now he thinks he's the first person ever to have discovered open water pool. <laughs> Honestly, it's, it's so irritating when some of us have been doing it for years. But anyway. Um,
0: as far as I can tell, he also Yeah, I'd always, swim. I mean,
1: whatever happens, I can tell you the first, get, I mean, the hardest thing for me about the lockdown was not being able to swim. Mm. Which
0: really,
1: after 40 years, or 50 years, really, of doing it all the time. Because so I started swimming when I was at school. It's been really, really hard. So I think people have different ways of dealing with their mental health. But I mean, the truth is I haven't suffered from the sort of poor mental health that Alistair has, I, I, I felt sad and angry and all those things. But I don't really understand what it feels like to be depressed, and, and that is very, very difficult if you live with somebody who is suffering from depression because your automatic reaction is, you know, just kind of can't you pull yourself out of it, or you know, what can I do to help? But those, sorry, um, the dog's been really irritating.
0: The, uh, those questions
1: <laughs> don't, those are, those questions don't really work in that situation. It's taken me a long time to work that out. Mm. I'm going to mute uh, now.
0: And they, and they they don't, but. Um, they are things. Although we're we're becoming more enlightened about mental health, that they are thoughts or feelings you still have. You know, I'll have I'll snap somebody and go, just sort yourself out, or you know, have that feeling. It's it's a fairly natural thing. But we we're, we're rationally becoming more aware of what's going on. I think
1: exactly. Uh, I, We've had two examples in the past few years of people. I'm not going to say who they were, because one of them was very high up in the government, and somebody was just somebody who worked in a local, local retail retail outlet who said to Alistair, what have you got to be depressed about you know I think that's still quite a common reaction I mean you've got a comfortable life you know you're happy you're successful you've got no reason to be depressed but of course these mental illnesses affect people regardless of their backgrounds how they live what money how much money they've got and we've got to be compassionate about that
0: and I guess Alistair the answer to that question is the question doesn't make sense it's the wrong type of question uh for depression
2: um yeah, it is because I think I think if you say what do you have to be, you'd never say what do you have to be asthmatic about. Mm. You know what 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 do you have to be cancerous about? What do you have to be diabetic about? You just wouldn't say that. Um, and so I think it comes from a place of not really accepting that it's an illness. Now there will be people, just as there are people who, you know, famously have bad backs because, but then they get spotted on the golf course, you know, with a nice <laughs> swing on a on a seven iron. Um, you will get people who might use it but I th- I think that anybody who really knows what depression is you honestly would not will it on your worst enemy so I think whenever somebody says what do you have to be depressed about you sort of think well you really don't understand it and I, I don't I don't mind in some ways because you know it's like whenever Fiona when I get depressed Fiona will often say what do you think triggered it and I never ever ever know and the question on one hand the one hand it irritates me but on the other hand it I quite like it because it makes me understand that even though I'm making her life a bit of a misery, at least she doesn't have depression. Um, And I think that for people to understand, it's like anything. I remember Charlie Faulkner, you know, former Lord Chancellor, a very good friend of ours. And I remember when he, I wrote a novel that was basically based on my breakdown and my depression. And he said he felt he understood it for the first time. He understood, he sort of felt what it might be like. now. That's that's kind of partly why I do this. I want people who don't get depression to understand what it's like. And I want people who do get depression to understand that lots of people get it. And there's lots of things that we can do to try and help ourselves.
0: That's one of the things that the book does. And the the book is, um, I think, brilliantly candid and um, a, a really good read it obviously helps that the supporting cast beyond David also involves Tony Blair and every world leader from the (laughs) late nineties onwards and um, some very interesting people. So as, as a read, it's got the added fascination of that. And, and in fact, there's one bit where you refer to Tony Blair's um, book where he'd made a passing comment about, I think it was, I'm paraphrasing, but along the lines of two types of people who are crazy, one's dangerous and the other's a genius, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, how, and you you wrote in response to that. Um, and obviously, um, that's a fairly public thing to do. But I, I guess that's the kind of thing that it's good to address with friends as well, as well as publicly when it's the prime minister or former prime yeah, minister. Yeah, well,
2: I also I raised it with him last week on Tony came when I did Good Morning Britain last week. Tony came on. I raised it with him. And, you know, in a I think it's the only time I publicly criticised. it. It wasn't that critical. I just point made an observation that is very uh, that is very stereotyping. You know, there are two kinds of crazy people, people who are just crazy and they're dangerous and people whose craziness gives them creativity and drive. And and that's Alistair's sort of craziness. And, you know, again, that that comes from a place of not really understanding, which, you know, I Tony is an extraordinary bloke in so many ways. But, you know, one of the most extraordinary things about him was his ability to have a pretty positive outlook on life all of the time to be very, very kind of, yeah, pretty upbeat, whatever was going on around him. And and I think that's maybe why we got on so well. There was quite a kind of yin yin and yang thing going on. Um, But I think it is a pretty stereotyping view. Um, And it also it's like the thing about that's sometimes I get a bit alarmed that, you know, like if you think about people like me and Stephen Fry and Ruby Wax, we're out there all the time because we all believe in campaigning on this. But you do have to be careful that people don't think that this is all sort of, you know, it's like a, it's like a creative thing that you kind of need some sort of mental illness to be really, really creative. Most people who are struggling with their mental health are never going to be on telly. They're never going to be famous. They're they're just struggling with their mental health. And it's
0: really, really, really hard. It strikes me. I'm, I'm guilty of it as well because I'm a big fan of Joy Division, for example, whose singer Ian Curtis um, took his life in the, the, the late 70s and the, the list of, you know, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. We do have a kind of romantic, romantic view yeah. of it in society that, that's still there. To, to, to move on slightly, the other things that you, you fill your life with, I'm interested in football. I'm interested in football because I'm a Spurs fan and it's an appalling time to be a Spurs fan and not a bad time to be a Burnley fan, possibly. But the, the investment, as you might in a rock star, in a football club, is it's, it's almost a slightly deliberate investment, isn't it? It's not entirely deliberate, but you, you invest in something that you can enjoy, that you are faithful to, but also gives you something back. Well
2: it's it's funny. My my sister who's obviously you know known me all her life because she was born uh after me, and she's she's got a very deep Christian faith. She's a and you know, she's she's got God in a big way. And you know, we, we have a joke about how my my you know my equivalent is Burnley Football Club. And you know, I actually will say, she'll say, You're coming up this weekend, I say, No, I'm busy, I'm going to the temple of Turf, you know. Um, and the Ashley Bards and Ashley Westwood, the disciples, and Sean Dyche, the Messiah, and all this sort of stuff. It is a kind of joke, but, you know, I don't think Fiona's ever fully understood this, but Burnley, it gives me something way beyond just watching a football team. Um, It's about the people, it's that sense of, it's like a congregation, you're singing the same songs, you're feeling the same things, and football is the only part of my life where I can lose myself with other people. I never, you know, if I go to a concert, if I go to like a rock concert, I never do that thing of, you know, waving the phone on your light and all that. I always look around and think, these people are a bit weird, you know, just enjoy the music and shut up. Whereas football, I'm absolutely completely immersed in it. And it's an obsession. You know, I'm now, I'm wearing at the moment, claret and blue socks with my Burnley shoes. And, you know, I'll wear a Burnley tie when I go out later um it's it's a very big part of my life and um yeah it matters
0: it it does it's important to have these things i think possibly the the one time i really forget myself or anything else that's going on and often work is playing football even if it's just kicking a ball around with a friend which is pretty much the most that's happened in the last 18 months there's there's something about getting into that different mode that works and i guess for you fiona swimming does that as well it's about um going into a different mode where you're comfortable or excited or in it.
1: I'm still laughing at the image of Alistair at a rock concert because I've only ever been to (laughs) one rock concert with him and he was so depressed. I remember at the top of the Royal Albert Hall, it's actually in one of his books on one of those, the cheap seats at the top with one of those galleries. And throughout the entire concert, Eric Clapton, I kept visualising him just leaning over and throwing himself over into the pit. And we went with a group of friends and it just, the the down for the whole evening from his mood was just... (laughs) Extra- extraordinary really anyway um... okay, can, I, can
2: I just jump can I just jump in there because there's a really interesting story about it. when the documentary uh about depression one of the people who got in touch with me afterwards was Eric Clapton uh cool. and we've met up since then to talk about it and I've told him this story about how you know because I do think he's an amazing musician but that that was a really interesting night because these friends of ours had got us tickets they desperately wanted us to go Fiona was, I was saying like, I really, really, really don't want to go out. I can't face it, please don't make me do this. Fiona, you know, they'll be disappointed, we should go. And I honestly was, I was suicidal that night. I really was struggling not to, you know, dive over. Um, So yeah, (laughs) Eric Clapton, there's a good name drop. Eric Clapton, we've had a good chat about that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And did he say, I get that a lot?
2: No, he didn't. But he did say that, you know, he gets he's had his own mm. struggles and, you know, of course, he had the awful situation with his son who who, who died. And um, so, yeah, it was uh, there was definitely a kind of there was a there was a there was a bonding that was quite quick.
0: That's interesting. And, and Fiona, I mean, you raised that that concert. Um, I suppose that's one of the things to, to deal with or to work out how to, to live with when those moments, you know, are, are, are difficult or going, going bad.
1: I think one of the things about being open about it is it's now much easier for me to say to people, I'm sorry, I was just very depressed and he can't come. Mm. Whereas for a long time we were trying to pretend that everything was fine. Um, and, I, you know, we didn't want to upset people by and I think people now understand, OK, you know, he's got an illness. And you wouldn't ask somebody who'd had sort of you know who's suffering from cancer or something who had suffering from the after effects of chemotherapy to go out if they didn't feel like it mm. so that's why i think that you know the more openness the better people can be open with their friends but it's interesting because since the book i've you know i've been contacted by lots of other people who live with partners or family members who are suffering from depression we've now started this little support group just to see whether there's a germ of something bigger there. And one of the things that does come through is that people don't want to tell their friends very often because their friends will say to them, well, why don't you leave him or why don't you leave her? It's making you miserable. Don't put up with it. And they don't want to do that. And I've been in that situation, too. So I think the more openness and understanding of, of what it is to live with it, the better. And interestingly, a lot of the people in the group have been with people for a very, very long time. So they have stuck with it. And, you know, it proves it can be done. But the partners and family members also need support. And I think there isn't enough of that around at the moment in the way that there would be for the partners and family members, people suffering from other kinds of conditions.
0: Yeah, that's I think that's a good question. I mean, you say support. Do you think there should be more um, services within the, the NHS or do, does it need more charity support groups? Or
1: well, That's a very interesting. I mean, it's hard to say that the NHS should find more resources for not the absolute, absolute front line. But. If the partners and family members go, I mean, they're effectively carers. If they go under, that's not good. It's not good for their mental health, and it won't be good for the mate, the primary sufferer either, especially mm. if they get, you know, the relationship does break break down and they're on their own. Because I think, you know, I would say that I have made a difference to Alistair by staying and by helping him through this. Um, I think the other,
2: the other thing that when um, talking of David Sturgeon, I, I'm, I'm desperately trying to th- I think I think, what's what his name? Peter Falk would be good if you could do an English accent. <laughs> Yeah. I, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, oh,
1: Anthony Hopkins.
2: What? Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins would be
0: good, yeah. yeah. Um, so who would play... Let, let's not go too fast off this. Who would play you if he's Anthony Hopkins? Um. And who plays Fiona?
2: Oh, Felicity Kendall plays Fiona. Oh, OK, obviously. I mean, it looks like it, <laughs> so she's got to do that. Um. And well, I don't know who plays fair, me. I've had 11 different actors have played me in different films, and the only one who got close, I th- <laughs> Uh, was the guy who actually the one who actually played me in the? It was it was probably the, the the film I least enjoyed watching, which was the 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 one about David Kelly's death. I think the the actor who played me there actually was was close to it. But no, it probably it'd, look it'd have to be one of the sort of Hollywood <laughs> megastars, wouldn't it? There's no doubt about that.
0: Well, clearly. So eleven. So have you been counting, or is there an IMDb thing where you could just check each no, week? I, ta- a- I tell you, it's at
2: least eleven because it was a magazine feature where they were done as a... Right, okay, And one of them, by the way, was Ian Duncan Smith's son, who played me in a pantomime or something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure that qualifies. Um, Anyway, we've veered off topic um, slightly. Um, Sorry, the the point I was going to make about David Sturgeon...
2: Yes. One of the best things he did after I started to see him was to say, I'd like to meet Fiona, I'd like to meet the family. Now, my point about... I don't think that enough... um, people understand, in the, in, the, in, the, in the health system, understand that when you're treating somebody for mental ill health, I think it is important to involve the family and also to understand what the family goes through. And I had, you know, my older brother, Donald had schizophrenia and I can remember, you know, virtually every time he ended up in hospital, desperately wanting to kind of, to help in any way that I could, to help him, but also to help the health people to understand him. And I I sort of felt that I was able to do a little bit more than other people, but that was because I was, if you like, who I was,
1: Mm.
2: whereas I talked to other people who were in exactly the same position, they felt they had no input at all, no understanding of what they were going through and no support whatsoever.
0: I suppose the, the, the big question for, for both of you really is this has been a long journey for you guys, but for other people or couples, it will be early on in um in going through a similar thing. What's the first thing you should do these days, in your opinion? Well, Afiehna, yeah, you I
1: think to... try and talk try and talk about it and have the confidence of your instincts. Because one of the things that happened to me right at the start before Alistair had his breakdown is I really felt he was, something was going badly wrong. He has, was having a breakdown. I went, phoned his then boss, who was a very big street figure at the time, said, mm-hmm. I think he's having a nervous breakdown. I'm, you know, we've got to do something. And the guy just basically dismissed me and said, oh no, he's absolutely fine. He'll carry on working. Don't worry about it. In fact, I was right and he was wrong. And I think if you feel that something isn't quite right, you should try and act on it. But I think too often people think, or it must be something to do with me or i'm not being good enough or you know i can't make them happy and i did that for years too but the, the the earlier you try and address it the better i mean getting people who don't want to get help to get help is really difficult but until you start talking about it you simply cannot even get to base one i don't think so have the confidence in your of your instincts and try and get the whoever is concerned to talk about how they feel if they won't talk to you try and find somebody else they will talk to i think
0: certainly that was the and the theme of our first session this morning as well is you know don't don't let it lie I guess um, from my own experience it can be difficult because part of um going through a difficult time is you don't necessarily actually want help or you don't think you want help you're it's part of of what you're in um but Alistair I suppose the theme of your book it really is to is to, to reach out
2: yeah and it's very hard because if you're the person who's ill um And I know I was like this. You don't, one, you don't want to admit it necessarily. And two, you do tend to push away the people that might want to help because you you think that they're they're calling you out for something that you don't think is a big problem. So I think the person has to come to that conclusion that there might be a problem, that there might be ways of dealing with it, that it might involve other people trying to help them. And I'd say for the people who are, you know, in the position that Fiona was in um in a way you've got to let people reach that decision in their own time and that's incredibly that can be incredibly slow and frustrating um but i always say to people who are who ask me you know what's the best thing for the the family the friend the colleague dealing with somebody where they're really worried about them it's not to say i'm really really worried about you all the time it's to it's to try to to bring them out in terms of recognizing their own worry uh, and that's very, very hard. And listen, I do it with people. I meet people that I, and people who are friends and family. And you kind of, you, you just want to sit around and say, right, this is what's wrong with you. This is what you've got to do. And mm. that's my kind of mentality anyway. That's what I tend to do with the problem. But it can be the worst thing to do because you're just basically, you're, you're putting up a brick wall.
0: I think, yeah, no, absolutely. But I think the the, the 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 flip side of that can be that, and it's clear from a few examples in the book, that you can't, underestimate the importance of or the effect somebody can have on you if they are understanding at the time you talk about I think it's two policemen during the breakdown in the 80s who didn't dismiss it or mistreat you you know did the right thing and that just little bit of compassion and understanding
2: yeah and and actually I I did a I did an interview series in lockdown with public figures talking about mental health And the theme of it was actually based on the question that they asked, which I think is one of the best questions you can ask somebody. If you think that they're struggling, you just say, "You okay?" Don't say, "Mm, "Are you okay?" It's like, "You okay?" And something about these two policemen up in uh, in Hamilton in Fife, something about them just triggered in me the honest answer, which was, "No, I'm not." And it's the first time I'd admitted that. And it was something about them that just I was probably it's back to what I said earlier. I probably had reached the point. Mm. I was in the middle of this psychotic meltdown and hearing voices and hallucinating and all this sort of stuff. And these two guys come up. I didn't know they were policemen; they were in plain clothes. And they just, you know, they just said, you OK. And I kind of looked at him and I said, you know, I don't think I am. I don't
1: think but I would. think, do well, you don't think that might be because you didn't know them? I mean, I think if somebody who was close to you had said you were okay, you'd have put up the de- defenses straight away, which is also. Yeah. I'm I'm just right, I mean, because-, yeah, because I've been asking if you were okay for weeks beforehand, and you told me that I was mad, and yeah. you were fine, and I was crazy.
2: Yeah. No, you're very. The day, the day itself, I was with Neil Kinnock and Patricia Hewitt, who was Neil's press secretary, and Patricia had been telling me all day, "Look, I'm really worried about you. Do you think you need to rest? Do you think, t- t- you, think you should be going home?" You seem a bit wired, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Um, and uh, so, yeah, maybe, maybe it was just the fact that somebody had, as you say, Andre, taken an interest. Now, they mm. were taking an interest because they thought I was a danger to public order and public safety. <clears throat> but they did it in a way that was really, really sensitive. And, you know, the next thing I knew I was in a cell and the next thing I was in a hospital.
0: It's quite something, isn't it? I think the um, we've. It seems to me over the last eighteen months we've developed a new etiquette with emails to start with. I hope you're well, as the kind of that's the what comes under the hi so and so, and um, maybe we need to probably emails not the right format, but asking the genuine question: Are you okay? How are you doing? Is and what what
2: the mental health charity is advising is if you are having these conversations, you know, you start with Are you okay or How are you? Yeah, but really. You know, really, let's cut through the bullshit. Really, how are you? And I think COVID has given us the opportunity to do
0: that. Mm.
2: People are, it seems to me, much more conscious of their mood and much more conscious of the way the outside world is impacting upon it.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's possibly true. The To give people the chance to say, well, actually, to be honest, I was, you know, okay last week, but this week's just a bit of a struggle. Yeah. It's a, it's a good thing to do. Um, you talk in um, the book, um, there, there's a bit where you, you um, set up gratitudes um, and uh, what's the other side? Resentments. Resentment. You're looking at, the, you know, what's important in your life and what's not, um, which is quite an extensive list. And obviously for our readers, resentments include dog owners who don't clean up after them on the heath, which yeah. I'm sure a lot of us would understand. Eating in a cinema really chimed with I me hope. as well. Yeah, <laughs> There's no there's no need. You you can survive two hours. In fact, you can just watch the film and not yeah. anyway. Don't get me started. But the that um w- well, how did that help, I guess, putting together those irritations and I think those how it
2: helped? That was another idea from the gospel oak-based psychiatrist David Sturgeon. Uh it was what how it helped is that no matter how low I am, when I write those lists, the gratitude list is always much longer. And mm. the resentments, even though the resentment of the people, the worst incinerary is boiled sweets. I mean, I, I once nearly killed somebody who was, it took about a minute to open a boiled sweet wrapper. They should just be banned in all public places. Um, but no, the resentment is always a lot shorter than the gratitude. And it just sort of gives you a little trigger to say, yeah, well maybe, and then you can focus on the gratitude. You can focus on the things that you like and just sort of, you know, avoid the things that you, you're gonna resent. And then the other thing I think you did something in the paper. Um, my other resentment, which is people, it relates to dog dog dirt, but also litter. You know, I had a bit of a fight with a litter out recently because that 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 one absolutely gets me going.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you share that with a lot of people on the heath. Yeah. Fiona, did you come up? Have you come up with these similar lists to to compare? No, no,
1: I haven't. I don't take. I'm afraid I probably don't take the time that Alister takes ever thinking about these things. I, I'm trying to sort of go on with living my life and not analysing as much as I should prob- probably. But that sounds like a really good idea. I don't know. I haven't thought of that. I'm just looking at this question on the screen, actually. That's what's distracted me slightly.
0: Um, um, Linda Chung.
1: Yeah. Well, both of
0: them. Mm. Yeah, well, actually, I mean, the, let's let's address the, the question. So, the, the, sorry, the, the first um, question we've had is, um, Alistair, your brother suffered schizophrenia. That was Donald, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Um, which is very different to depression. So, did your own insights help understand, or help family members to understand, and help him as well? Or uh, actually, how, how does it translate? I guess is the question when you're looking at yourself.
2: Yeah, I think um, no is the short answer in terms of when it when he was immediately diagnosed, but yes, definitely over the long term as I became much more interested. And actually, Donald is the real reason that I've had this sort of lifelong fascination with mental illness. Donald and I were very close um, and you know we were different in that I was more academic, uh, did really well at school. But I say in the book, I wonder now, I can remember when Donald was in his teens, he was two or three years older than me. When he was in his teens, I can remember my mum and my dad really struggling to get him out of bed to go to school and I wonder if that was the start of what it was that then led to him developing schizophrenia. There was something already going a bit, a bit haywire. Uh, there are similarities, by the way, Linda, in that Donald, although Donald was on the anti-psychotic med- medicines all his life, all his adult life, he was also on the same antidepressants as I was on. Um, but I think that what I learned about, I learned a lot from the way that he dealt with his illness. He never allowed himself to be completely defined by it. And that meant that he could project himself in a way. So I say in the book that I'm forever grateful to Glasgow University because he had a job there for 27 years. And he was a very good musician. He played the bagpipes to a really high standard. He was the university piper, which, you know, a Scottish University is quite, quite a deal. You're quite busy. Mm-hmm. And it gave him status and it gave him recognition and it gave him a passion. and. They never defined him by his illness either. They knew that he would get ill and he would go off the rails every now and again. He might cause incidents in the in the library as he sometimes did, but you know they, they understood that and they made allowances for that. Um, so yeah, I think it helped it helped me latterly. But no, the when he was first taken ill, it was like a it was a life changing, horrible, horrible, horrible thing. We knew nothing about schizophrenia, literally nothing, and um, it was just horrible.
0: And and she obviously shared that with with well with most people. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not something we knew or know much about.
2: No. And people still think that you know schizophrenia, Jekyll and Hyde, split personality, all that. It's very very different to that. It's when your mind is unable to compute what is happening around you, and 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 it's just it's it's horrible. I remember once when we were up in Scotland on holiday. And, and Grace, our daughter, was she loved Donald and she used to love sort of sitting and talking to him and she was filming an interview with him. She was at film school and he was talking about what it's like when it's really bad. And he was, he was describing how, you know, snakes coming out of light bulbs and people coming out of sockets in the wall and voices inside his head all telling him to do different things. And every, if you're in a pub, everybody's talking about you and, and all that. And it's pretty amazing how well he dealt with it, considering.
0: Mm. perhaps the other question that's um, come up we can address to to Fiona so um, question from uh, Stephen as a parent with a young child with mental health challenges we've had a three-year journey and our eyes are open to the lack of training within schools at recognizing and seeing the child and not the behavior with the small investment in mental health by the government would you agree that we need to invest heavily in training of teachers in primary schools
1: absolutely I mean I think I'm trying not to blame the teachers because I think a lot of them just have no confidence in this really? area, um, and that's scary for them. There is a there is an organisation I'm quite involved with called The Difference, which is funded now to take senior leaders out of schools and give them mental health training, then put them back into schools so they would have somebody on the senior team who's a sort of mental health specialist, especially in trauma-informed practice. But I think there's a wider question here about the the focus we put from a very early age on academic learning at the expense of what. Ex- of well-being and helping children to understand and talk about their emotions. And if that was built more into the curriculum, I think it would provide opportunities for teachers to think more about the child rather than just make sure they're going to get through their, you know, seven-year-old SATs and then their 11-year-old SATs and and their GCSEs. And it's really, really tragic. It isn't necessary to have such an emphasis on the academic side. It could be more balanced, and that's really important, as well as the training, obviously.
2: I think the other thing, Andre, is is that um, I did an interview with Nadine Dorries, the mental health minister on Good Morning Britain last week, and she was making this big announcement, £70 million of mental health support for children. Well, that works out at £2 per child. Um, it is not a priority. When you can spend £37 billion on a test, track and trace system that doesn't work, £70 million in government terms is literally small change down the back of the sofa. And I actually think I wouldn't put the folk, the onus on teachers. I would... I would look at seeing whether we couldn't model what we did when we were in government with the classroom assistants and actually have mental health first aid trained uh, classroom assistants who are looking out for that specifically. Mm
0: -hmm. And if
2: you think about, I did a conference recently with a a child psychiatrist from Italy who was making the point that actually children who've been born who are growing up in the last couple of years, she said their brains are actually going to be a different shape to the brains of children who have grown up prior to the pandemic because the, the brain changes shape according to trauma. And not, not being allowed to run to and cuddle mm. your siblings, your uncles, your aunts, your grandparents, that for a child is, is like a form of trauma. And she was saying she doesn't think we've even begun to think through the consequences on a child's development of what's happened in the last year or so, mm-hmm. and that's going to translate into schools. So why aren't we thinking ahead of that? Um, and, and you know, the problem with the government at the moment is that their whole default position is, you know, things aren't as bad as you people are saying. Nadine Dorries says that you know there's been no great uptick in suicide. Well, that was the same during the global financial crisis, but it came a few years later.
0: Uh, we're going to have to wrap up fairly shortly, but there's one more question that's come through. So let's um, let's address that. Um, what are your thoughts about what type of help matters most to family members and relatives when someone's going through a mental health crisis? What would you like healthcare professionals to know? This came up earlier, obviously, but I suppose in more specifics, what what's needed for for those family members? Um, Fiona, perhaps you'd like to address yeah, that yeah. first.
1: I think I can only speak on the basis of the people I've been in contact with since talking about this. And the one thing that really comes through is if they can talk to somebody else who's been through the same experience as them, so they feel they're not alone and hear how other people have dealt with it, it makes an enormous amount of difference. I mean, we have this group once every couple of weeks and some people have joined it, said, you know, this is the only time, you know, I feel I can talk about this and being able to talk about this makes such a huge difference to me, which is why I think that one of the solutions may be to have a sort of you you have Al-Anon for the families of addicts, is to have some sort of support network nationwide for the families of people who are going through mental health difficulties. It does something that, like, that does exist in the United States, I've now discovered, so that people can Mm -hmm. always have a sort of buddy or a sponsor or a group to go to or somebody they can phone up if they feel they can't cope.
0: That's interesting that that it exists over there. Alistair, um, I assume you'd you'd agree with that?
2: Absolutely, totally. And I I think that... um, you know I, I I think that I think doctors and the medical profession generally should see families as part of the solution um, and involve them and also understand that there are implications for them and I think the family would become a better support to the person who's struggling by being involved by giving clear guidance one of the most important moments in our whole sort of you know progress on this was when David Sturgeon said to Fiona, you must never blame yourself. Now, I could say that when I was well, I could say, well, it's not your fault. I mean, I would say, "Is you when I was depressed, I would say, is your fault? Yeah, you are making me sad. Yeah, you're not being very nice to me, blah, blah, blah. And I realise now that was both kind of manipulative and quite cruel. But when David said it, as an outsider, it's back to Fiona's point about maybe sometimes you need that outside person. When David said to her and the children, you must never, ever blame yourself. I think that was a key moment for I think it did change the way that Fiona thought about it. And she could be then, I think, more understanding and maybe more forgiving of what I was like when I was was in a bad way. So I think understand the family needs support and that will ultimately help the doctor to help the help the patient. Does that frustrate? I completely agree with the comment there. Somebody just said teaching assistants are trained to look out and report back. Sadly, it doesn't always go further. Money is the problem, and so is the lack of trained staff. I totally agree with that. But the government, I think, should be we should try and persuade them, and bloody hard with this lot, we should try and persuade them that ultimately that is the way they're going to save money. If you get a child who's, you know, starting to display symptoms. Of mental illness early on and they can be supported through that at a time when they're much more open to the idea of being helped as a child mm-hmm. you're going to save on prisons and probations and you know domestic violence and all the other stuff that we know spills out from this
0: and to go back to the two policemen you met in the 80s if you ask any two policemen now i'm sure they would agree as well, they're listen, on the front line
2: policemen at the moment they get a bad rep for a lot of stuff but i tell you I think the police at the moment are probably seeing and dealing with more mental illness than quite a lot of doctors.
0: Anyway, I think we're um, just about at the end of our time. I w- just one final question, actually, for, for North Londoners who may not have heard them often played well. Do you want to tell us what the therapeutic value of bagpipes is?
2: <laughs> I like this. This is one of my, my recent compositions mm-hmm. George Mackey's Highland Caps. Um, it's a good question that, I mean, I'm glad you said for somebody who had ha- the, the, one of the reasons why a lot of English people don't like the bagpipes is that quite a lot of people don't play them very well. Okay. I think Fiona would agree, and my neighbours definitely agree, I play them well, because I was taught well and I, and I take it seriously. The bagpipes played well are one of the most beautiful sounds on the planet. Um, you can make people happy when you play in jigs and reels. And my speciality, you won't be surprised to hear, are laments and really slow stuff. And I can make myself cry when I'm playing the bagpipes. I can move myself. I think they're the best best funeral instrument. Although I thought the piper at Prince Philip's funeral was, he had a little bit of a problem with his middle drone, I think. Um, And I think with my brother, I think the reason why the bagpipes were so important to my brother is literally that I think he was creating his own noises To deal with and compete with the noises in his head, um, Mm. creating something quite beautiful out of it. Um, So, yeah, listen, music is absolutely not just bagpipes, but any music. Um, And I'll give you another Hampstead story. I've just recorded that Radio 3 private passions program where you have to pick classical music. I told the story that when Fiona was pregnant with our first child Rory she used to wander around Hampstead Heath with a Walkman listening to Schubert's Impromptus because she was worried that if it was a boy I would brainwash him into liking football. (laughs)
1: Uh,
2: Both of our sons work in football so I won, it didn't work but I chose Schubert's Impromptus because of that.
0: Unlucky Schubert. Um, Thank you both very much for joining us, it's been a really Um, fun hour and um, yeah I wish you all the best and uh, yeah thanks once again. Thank you
1: bye to everybody bye bye. Take Take care care.
0: good luck to the the
2: new Hammond High with your, your revamp and your relaunch.
0: Thank you very much much appreciated So thank you to Alistair and Fiona for joining us hit subscribe and we'll be back soon